being open and, talking and listening to that criticism is the best for me, the best form of growth. You didn't do that very well. We didn't really work too good. Hello and welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast for small business owners. I'm your host, Simon Kalou, and I created this show not only to motivate and inspire, but to give you actionable strategies to take back into your business, shortcutting your route to success. Each week, I'll sit down with real and relatable business owners, uncovering how they've created a business that gives them freedom, creates impact, and makes money. So let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Founder Stories. You know, the point of this podcast is not to try and be the same as Diary of a CEO and all these other great podcasts, but to create something that entrepreneurs and business owners who have small businesses can relate to, be inspired by, and take, you know, practical steps from each podcast to go back to their business. So today joining me is Kingsley Peters. He is the founder and creative managing director of Kingle, uh, which is a creative agency in the Midlands. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. Um, let's get straight into it. Tell me what your business does now. Obviously, we'll reverse back and go to go through your story, but for a bit of context and a bit of motivation for people and why they should listen, because you have achieved, achieved great levels of success. I was spying on all the stuff you've done yesterday. Thank you. Some of the clients that you work with and some of the case studies and the quality of the work is incredible. Um, tell me what your business does now. Tell me some of the clients maybe that you've worked with and then we can reverse back to how, how you got to this point. Sure. Um, so as, as you say, um, I run a, a creative agency based in, in Birmingham. Um, we work with a whole uh, wealth of, of, of clients um, of all sizes, but I think what we really specialize in doing is um, helping clients find that one thing that um, makes them stand out. So yeah. that one little insight or that one little hook that they can then um, talk about and we can help them creatively project so um, I'll give, give you an example. Um, we, we work a lot with a company called Valent. Yeah. So Valent are a heating manufacturer. They uh, manufacture products like heat pumps and boilers and con uh, controls, thermosets, that, 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 that sort of thing. I remember them well, because my first flat that I ever purchased in South London, and I had to change the boiler, I went for a Valent boiler, because oh, my man. dad told me, right. these are the ones to get, these are reliable. Yeah, they really are. I mean, they're, they're, they're German manufactured, you yeah. know, I'm not just saying this, I've been out to their uh, manufacturing plant in Germany, seeing the R&D, they put a lot of effort into the uh, production yeah. um, of those um, those boilers. So the challenge that we were, that Phelan came to us with was to um, relaunch essentially their flagship boiler. Yeah. So I think um, our process really in, in, in any creative task is about really digging into and understanding as I say, what that one thing is that makes that product different. Um, so the product they wanted to launch was called the Ecotech Plus. It's their flagship boiler. It was, um, they had an original version of it. It was really popular. It may have been the one that was in your, may have been in yeah. your flat. Um, but they invested a lot of time and money in enhancing it and making it much better. Okay. Um, 
So they kind of came to us and said, look, we've got this new Ecotech Plus. We want to kind of launch it to uh, to, to the world, to, yeah. mainly in the UK, but, you know, obviously to, 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 yeah, to the UK. Um, we, need, we need a really creative idea. So after playing with lots of kind of concepts, lots of ideas, we latched onto this idea that the boiler had almost been fine-tuned and enhanced, almost like you'd take a piece of music. So, for example, you might take a... Uh, a, a remastered piece of music. You have to really understand what's great about that piece of music yep. to, to remaster it. So we came up with this idea of the original remastered because the boiler itself had only had these kind of fine-tuned things change, you know, yep. adjusted placements of it, of certain things within the boiler, fine-tuned certain technical elements, but it had a massive impact on the output of that boiler. Yep. So the creative idea we landed on, as I say, was the original remastered. And um, it allowed us to essentially kind of take that product and package it in a way that was really interesting. You know, boilers are great. I wouldn't say, you know, they're the, they're the sexiest of products. But yep. I think actually where we get a kick is taking some of these products that are probably, you know, run of the mill everyday, you know, utility based products yep. and making them really exciting. So we did this full launch around this remastered product. Mm. Um, creating all these CGIs, using language that was all about kind of enhanced and fine-tuned and amplified. So you're not losing all of that brand value and product trust that they've already built up as well, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And I think continuing that message as well, you know, a creative campaign needs to first and foremost grab the attention of its audience. Yeah. You know, you've got to grab them and uh, make them pay, you know, grab their attention so they're interested. Yeah. Um, but I think also when you're communicating over lots of different channels, so we were doing an event, we did CGI, we did animation, we did film, we did video, we did social, we did print, yeah. everything. You've got to have a consistent message yeah. because that ultimately is where you're then hammering home that that one key point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, long story short, we did this full launch, went down to the Science Museum, launched the, the, the product. And the idea, again, allowed us to do some really interesting things. So at the actual launch itself, we had a digital orchestra. So they were, you know, kind of entertaining the, the attendees. Yeah. You know, we remastered the food, you know. So, oh, okay. so, so yeah, that, yeah. that idea, yeah. you know, that, that one insight went across everything. Yeah. Um, and that's essentially what we specialize in. I, I suppose I get a real kick out of, understanding a product finding that one thing and then coming up with loads of creative ideas yeah. that you know make me excited about that product it can yeah. be an insurance thing it can be a a boiler as i say it can be um it can be anything i think you can make anything exciting if you find that one thing that people are going to be interested in and genuinely believe in it right so definitely it sounds like and something i mean i didn't learn it this week but what came to me this week in a course that I'm doing is that you have to get to the point where either for yourself or for you, for your clients, you truly believe in the product, the price point, the offer. And when it comes to selling or marketing that product, it's easy. Definitely. Because you believe it yeah. and it comes through. If you create some campaign that you think will go down well, but you don't and your team don't genuinely believe in it, it probably won't work. Definitely. And, and I think for me, gut instinct yeah. is a major part of how um, I do business and how I judge ideas. Because ultimately, you know, we may have a brief where we've got lots and lots of ideas on the table. Yeah. And I think you can 
I suppose it's like any business decision, you know, you can think about it with your mind and, you know, technically that's probably right. And, you know, we think the client will buy that, but actually that idea over there, that's the one yeah. that, that makes me excited. That's the one that when I'm getting in the car and driving home or I'm in the shower, the one I remember mm. and learning to listen to that gut instinct and having, I suppose, the strength to promote that and push that yeah. and try and get the client to buy that. Yeah is a massive part of, of, of so, my business. Is this like, you just, this wasn't in my notes and it wasn't in my thought process, but you just reminded me of the program Mad Men, mm. which I'm sure you've watched. Mm. Is the scenario that you've got this client and they've come to you and then you have to go and pitch those ideas? And do you just go with that one idea, the original remastered or do you have to present three or four, but you really want them to pick the one that you love? So that's a really great question. And I think actually uh, in our in our industry, a, a, a common challenge and question. So with the original remastered, we hung all of it on that one idea. Okay. We didn't go in with multiple ideas. Yeah. <clears throat> we made the decision that it was do or die on that one. We believed in it so much. Yeah that we felt we should just put all our eggs in one and basket. And that shows the client how much belief you have in it as well. Yeah. And at that point, has that client committed to the scale of the creative project with you? Or could they turn around and say, I don't like it. We'll pay you for the work up to this point, but we're going to go in a different direction. So right now in 2023, is it like Mad Men where you're still at that point pitching to get the rest of the work and then you'll agree the scope and the fee? which might increase over time if they decide, well, actually we'd like this and we'd like this and we'd like this. Or at that point, have you already won the work? Um, so it varies. I think in in Kingle, we don't actually do a lot of pitches. I yeah. think a lot of our the growth of the business has come through, organic growth has come through. We have done pitches. And yeah. I think obviously the Valent one was a pitch. We've done some pitches for um, NFU Mutual. We, we have, you know, but generally what we found is that we will do a pitch. If we've won the pitch, we then focus on just growing ourselves within that business. Yeah. You know, I'm a real strong believer that I'd rather invest all my time and efforts in understanding the client's challenge yeah. and seeing if they have any other areas where we can add value and we can help yeah. instead of hemorrhaging time and money on going after new clients, just getting them in the door, yeah, landing build them. build relationships. Then, exactly. Yeah. So going back to your kind of question, the three ideas versus the one idea, yeah. I think both still happen. You know, I think sometimes we feel that actually we've got two or three good ideas and we feel we want to share a, a, a breadth of, of, of concepts. Mm. Sometimes we do just go, we, we believe this is it, you know, and you either take it or you don't. Yeah. I think unpaid pitches is still a big thing in, yeah. in our industry. It's, it's still a common thing. We have done paid pitches. There have yeah. been times when we've done paid pitches. And I think actually I'm a strong believer, especially with smaller businesses, that I think those pay pitches should really be the standard yeah. because ultimately, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a team, we, it takes a lot of time and resource. So, you know, we're not, you know, we're not like the big Saatchi Saatchi McCann's, you know, I think they have a lot of, you know, manpower. They have a lot of people. Yeah, they'll have a department like, just for creating unpaid pitches, right? Which comes exactly. into their overhead. So they're just sitting there doing it all the time. Exactly. And they can afford 
to lose that margin of you know of time and those, yeah. and those people smaller businesses you know when we decide to pitch it's all or nothing for us you know mm. we have to go all in and we have yeah. to find ways of kind of managing the work we have on yeah. and making sure that doesn't suffer and deciding to go in with with the, you know and, and put put forward for our ideas yeah so the general process would be that if you are pitching for free we then pitch all the ideas say with valent you know that they, they, they love the idea we then cost up obviously what that campaign would be mm. usually they would give us a, a kind of a ballpark cost for what budget they want to spend over the year yeah and a part of the pitch will be how we will spend that yeah. how would we invest that in the time um but nine times out of ten you pitch an, an idea they then you'd then have creative development time quoted to develop that further yeah you know to because it's never going to be right first time they know their business much better than we do we're coming yeah. at it from an inter- exterior perspective yeah um external perspective so yeah you have to try and build that time into the to the, the further development but if it's a you know if it's a if it's a large campaign and there's a big budget it's worth the investment and how do you win a client like like valent why don't they just go to a big branded agency that's got 300 staff how have you won that client i think that's something that people would be so interested to you know if you're starting out and you're a freelancer i guess a lot a lot of the journey of people is they, they'll work at a big agency like mother or someone if they're still in existence now they used to be a big mm. agency when mm. we had our accountancy firm in london you build up some some relationships, you leave, you freelance on your own, you can't take those clients with you, but after a certain period of time, then you can start doing work for those clients. You've got those relationships. Mm. But typically where I've seen agency owners then get stuck is they can't develop new relationships. And so they're stuck with those four or five clients. Mm. And then eventually those will dwindle and they'll go somewhere else and they've got no business because they have no lead generation process. Mm. So... How do you win a client like like Valent? I think I think that's a really good 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 point. I think they're with the bigger agencies. Obviously, they have a brand themselves. You know, yeah. like you're saying, Mother Saatchi. And people Saatchi. come to them. Yeah. People know them. Yeah. But in reality, obviously, I've worked I've worked at those big agencies. I've come. Yeah. That's where I suppose I cut my teeth in a lot in some of the big agencies. Okay. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the big all the big agency is is a group of creative individuals an account yeah. manager creative director you know art director copywriter designer they're just the same as a business that's our size eight to ten people yeah so i think actually what you get and this is i suppose how we would position ourselves is that we are not a one two-man band we're not the freelance you know set up yeah we're not the huge agency yeah we sit smack bang in the middle. Oh, I believe you're in a sweet spot, just like Grow Factor. I've now got to the point where I'm saying to people, you can't get better than Grow Factor because if you go to a KPMG, they don't care about you. That's exactly it. Yeah. If you go to a an accountant that has a couple of staff, you they'll take you on and things will be good, but they want to scale their own business. So you have to go through their growing pains with them. If you go for someone in between who has, I guess, between five, six, seven and 20 to 30 staff, that's a perfect sweet spot because you're going to get the personal service. But the person you go in that's doing the work with you will stay with you as the business grows because you've already created these pods within your business. And to me, it's perfect. 
right? So I get that. Mm. But then how does a business... So I can understand how, say, Growth Factor can go and win a big client. I mean, we don't target big clients, but if we wanted to, because we, say, form a partnership with Tony Robbins, big people go to his events that business is turning over 50, 100, 150 million. If we had the capability to serve them, we could generate those leads and convert them. We don't have that capability, so we have to say sorry and recommend them to someone else, right? But for you, how do you generate that lead in the first place? I think it's a good question. I think um, we... For me, it's almost like how we would treat any campaign. It's about raising your profile in as yeah. many possible ways as you can. And then they'll find you. Then they, so they have people within the Valent marketing team that are looking on LinkedIn, looking for case studies, looking at online content. And exactly. they'll reach out to you. Yes. Yeah, so so, okay. so it can't, I suppose for us, it comes in different ways. You know, we have um, different approaches. So we try and raise our business through PR. So that's... Yeah. Um, essentially having press releases you know yeah. we've released uh, done a new campaign um, we will try and release we'll, we'll try and be in the press yeah from a, um, an RFP perspective so people approaching us um, you know we do have an outreach program where you know there is an element where you have to kind of cold you know cold approach businesses yeah just to start relationships exactly right? um, and then purely from a creative perspective so uh, in, entering awards and from as you were saying kind of social content you know I, yeah. I kind of I have my own Instagram uh, channel. Some of my my team have their Instagram uh, channels. I think, you know, we, we produce content across LinkedIn. Mm. I think a big thing for me, and one of the reasons that I was, you know, I wanted to talk to you and, you know, be involved in the podcast was because I think actually, you know, it's really important to talk about um, what you believe in and your values. And I think a lot of the, the, the content that you talk about around health and, and mindset and, and well-being are a major part of, my focus for the business too yeah i think things like as well for me you know one of our uh one, one of our, our art directors rosie she's um she's a brilliant illustrator so outside of our uh agency she does a lot of illustration yeah and i'm really keen to help encourage that because just going back to what you're saying about raising our profile one, it's great for her. You know, first and foremost, she's really passionate about it. She's great at it. Yeah. It's good for her development. You know, I think it's great for her profile, but equally, it's good for the business's profile. You know, mm. I think if she's doing something she's enjoys, she's passionate about it, she's talking about it, yeah. and people know that she's working at Kingle. Yeah. It's a win-win all round. Yeah. So I think for me... You're not trying to create these individual robots. You're letting people come into the team. C keep consistent with their own passions and have their own personalities definitely and, and i think you know that that for me is um I'll, I'll come on to talk about how i think almost running a freelance collective in the early days has informed that thinking mm. but just going back to your your point about um uh, profile raising i think having um uh, those relationships and having people that believe in the kingle brand and yeah. are passionate about what they do and our passionate, energetic people, that for me is the very best. I think if there was one thing that has helped our business grow, it has been creative energy. Yep. It's been clients coming to us or us even, a lot of time us going to the clients to try and understand what their challenge is and just talking to them and then going away and coming up with ideas or just mm. while we're talking to them, have you thought of this? Have you tried this? Have you tried yeah. this? That sort of energy and want to be creative for them yeah for me has always been the thing that actually 
has grown the business because I think people are attracted to that. Yeah. You know, I think the cold calling or the, the email outreach, the PR, you know, the social, that's all great. And I think that's profile raising. But for me, it's ultimately you care about what they care about. Yeah. And if you can help them and you genuinely are interested, that's where the growth comes, I think. Mm. And I think it's not a case of you then being super selective with who you take on. It actually sounds like your philosophy is you can get passionate and excited about anything if the standard and values of that company align with yours. So Definitely. you're not promoting nuclear warheads or whatever it might be. No. That being said, any product that might be traditionally boring you almost see it as a challenge to make it exciting and make people understand why there's value in that. Oh, definitely. In that product. And also what I'm getting is you're hiring people that are confident, are capable. And so everything doesn't have to go through you. Mm. You trust your team to come up with these creative ideas, right? Definitely. Trust, Trust, I think, is for, for me, is a massive part of how I manage the business mm. and who... I want in the business. And when you've got kids, you can't have it any other way. You can't be no. micromanaging everyone and working 100 hours a week. Definitely not. And, and I suppose the trust, you know, I've been in businesses and I've experienced environments where actually there isn't a lot of trust. And I think that can be challenging yeah. because I think that ultimately, if you trust people to do a good job, and you don't, like you're saying, you don't micromanage them. You're not overseeing them. You're not kind of, you know, telling them what they should be doing. Yeah. It gives me the space to do what I enjoy and know that if I ask them to do something, I might not speak to them for two or three days. Yeah. But I know that after those two or three days, that what was needed will be will be done. Yeah. Or they'll have come back to you if they hit a roadblock. Definitely. And they've kept you aware of their progress. Mm and everything else right but that's about hiring a certain type of person who's probably more senior than your typical person would think they should hire when they're first scaling their business definitely i and i think having i mean you know we, we we're at a point with the business now where we've got um a senior kind of director level so there's four of us at a, a, a director level and i think for me having that breadth of skill set at that level means that I can go off. I can turn my phone off for the morning. Yeah, you know, you've got and do other people who can make yeah. decisions exactly. at that level. Did you? We will reverse back at some point, but did, this is super interesting. So the structure is you've got the four senior people, their directors, then you've got the creative output level below, and then well, we can talk about individual structure. Did you give the who who's the founding? Are you the founder of I'm the business? The founder, yeah. So when you bring in these directors. Are you giving them equity in the business? How are you bringing them in and making them act like it's their business? I, th- I think um, the, the, the situation for me is we started essentially with, with uh, being a freelance collective. Yeah. Um, and it's grown from that um, position where ultimately we the directors have are remunerated at yeah. the end of each year yeah. for the for the health of the business yeah we're very transparent with how the business has done yeah so obviously not in the nuances of all, all the detail but you know the 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 
the costs in the business, the profit in the business. But they get out what they put in. So that's exactly. how you're making them feel like owners, right? It doesn't We didn't need to go into the share structure and how you pay dividends and all of these things. But ultimately what you're saying is, yeah, they're not on a fixed income. They're directors. So how, however well the business does and they've contributed to that, there'll be a sharing process in that reward, right? That's exactly it. And I think yeah. for me, that's always been really important. Yeah. You know, I, I want... And we do it with the team as well. You know, I think at the, the, the director level, obviously, they have, we, we all as a team have clear KPIs in yeah. that, you know, our growth or our, um, you know, our targets are attributed to a particular KPI. Yeah. And, um, but at the end of that year, our end of our financial year, if we've done really well, yeah. there, there's remuneration for that. And I think that for me, um, that's an important part of the business. Mm. But I think, I think for me, the major driver I would like to think behind the the director level is not purely monetary driven. I think it's very much about freedom. Mm. I think I created Kingle with the vision of having like-minded individuals that are able to do what they're really good at, to do what they enjoy, earn a good good, um, income from it, but also have a really good work-life balance. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, the business has not been created to make loads of money and for the directors to make loads of money and for me to make loads of money. I'm never, I've never really been a money-orientated person. Mm. I think because I'm a creative at heart, you know, and I've come through that creativity, what I really get a kick off out of is good creative work and the process of creating yeah. So I think to, 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 to go on what it is that the, 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 the senior team feel motivated by, I think it's knowing that we have a strong and healthy business that allows them flexibility and the work-life balance that means that they're there for their kids yeah. when, when, so when needed. So you're all in a similar situation in terms of age, family, you you share the same standards and values, right? You all want work life balance. That's exactly to do it. good work and work hard, mm. but have enough time to take like you know take your kids and go and watch them play cricket or watch them play football on the weekend. That's and it. Not be working all Saturday on a deadline, right? If you're a director level, because you've built this team underneath, you can do the work. You trust them as well. Mm. So each of the four directors, do they have? A different area in the business that they're kind of responsible for definitely yeah, yeah so, that makes sense so we'll get into that let's reverse back right okay. and then i want to come back to that because i think what you've done is you've managed to break through this wall that i believe 90 plus percent of creative agency owners cannot break through which is and i was speaking to one of my clients about this 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 week you know you've hired that first person they're not good enough you've got to fire them you've tried to hire another person they're not good enough you've got to fire them and you just get stuck in how do I transition from having good work, having great clients, but working 50, 60 hours a week, maybe you're turning over 100K, you've got some freelancers that help you, but how do you go into actually having a real business mm. and bringing other people on? And I think you've done that in a really smart way, which I believe is the answer too. I have a business partner who takes care of all of the day-to-day for me. I'm more of the CEO, he's more of the COO making sure that all the work is getting done, making sure that the clients are happy, making sure that, you know, the team of senior accountants that we've got in, who we've hired at a more and more senior level, so they're self-sufficient anyway, 
but they're happy and they're all on their KPIs. And so you need that person. Otherwise, I'd have to do that job, right? And I think you've done that really smartly. And lots of people, they don't necessarily want to wait to hire until they can afford that senior person. And they're doing it in the wrong way. They're hiring too junior and they're having to just spend all their time managing those people. Mm. Tell me about what you did before Kingle. You were working at big agencies. What agencies did you work at? And how did you come up with that idea that first time that you had that idea to start your own business? Yeah, so I think I was working at um, an agency in, in, in central Birmingham. I was kind of managing their creative team. And I think I've been there for three, three or four years. Um, and I just got to the point where I wanted to just do it for myself. You know, I think I I, I just had that hunger to to challenge myself and do yeah. do something for myself. So I jumped ship um, and set up essentially as a freelancer. So freelance art director. I was working for agencies around. And could you around take Birmingham. any of your clients with you that you had relationships with? No, no. I think so. Um, so did you so, say so it's a hard place? These to are be. the practical things that yeah. people think of. Did you? So you've jumped. You've got no clients no income, mm. did you save money in order to make that jump? Yeah, so I, I, I probably decided about a year, year and a half before I left okay. that I wanted to do something for myself. And how old are you at this point? Um, well, I'm 42 now and that was eight years ago. So yeah, kind of 32, 33. Okay, so you've got a kid at this point. I've got, I've got So you've got responsibilities. Yes, right? so at that point I have a, a son who's, um, probably six or seven. Do you think that motivated you to do your own thing? It was the birth of probably my second son that really motivated okay. me because I think I got to the point where he was, he was, uh, he was born, he was, you know, very young and I was still doing the same thing, you know, so I was still leaving the house at 7.30 and getting yeah. back at seven every day. And I think I just got to the point where I was, I just felt that there was more and yeah. I could do more and I, I, I wanted a different balance. I wanted a different work-life balance. Yeah. So I kind of made the decision alongside my wife, you know, that I would work, start working for myself. Yeah. As you say, I, I couldn't just jump, I had a mortgage to pay. And what does your wife do? So she- um, Like, can she support you at this point? Yes, or? and that was yeah. a really big, that was a really big, yeah, big part. Yeah, which is the same with me. My wife's retired now, but she was a dentist. So she was able to support me when I started mm. the business. Yeah. If I needed it. And I think that was that was a really big part of jumping ship was that we knew that if worse comes to worse, her salary would would support us. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a that's a hard thing to feel. You know, I think sometimes like I didn't I don't ever want to feel like I'm being carried. Yeah. But you know, m for me, marriage is about teamwork. Yeah, it's a partnership. It's a partnership, right? exactly. Yeah, 100%. And you know, we were in it together. Mm. So through her support, I was able to say, okay. I've saved a chunk of money now. I saved enough money that I felt that if I didn't get any work yeah. for six months, six to eight months, I yeah. could pay the mortgage. I could pay my my way in the house. Yeah. Um, but I was fortunate in that it didn't come to that. I didn't really end up using any of it. Yeah. What I did over those that period of like the, the last the last year was kind of talk to other people outside of the business. Um, you know, kind of talk to other agencies about, you know, would they need a freelancer in the in the future? Just, just I suppose, build my portfolio, talk to people. Yeah. You know, I was working really hard at the time, so I wasn't really doing too much, but I was, I suppose, you know, laying the ground yeah, for building that. a network. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when I jumped ship, yeah, I, I kind of, I just, 
approached all of my mutual kind of contacts, people that I knew were still working in agencies yeah. and said, you know, are you looking for, for freelance work? And I was fortunate in that, you know, I got freelance from people I know down in London, people yeah. less so. You weren't going all direct to client at this point. You were no. freelancing, right? Yeah. But I always knew that I wanted my own clients. I didn't know I wanted to create an agency. Yeah. Interestingly, I, I never really had that vision of creating an agency. I had the vision of having my own direct clients. And I think that the reason was, was because as a freelancer, you kind of come in, you do a certain job and then you go. Yeah. And I was always much more interested in the full process. You know, what is the client challenge? You know, what are they, what are they dealing with? Mm. How is it then? What are the metrics on the outcome of it? And how can I make it a profitable job? Yeah. I loved that idea of not just doing the creative, but all of it. Yeah. And building a relationship over time where you can transform that that brand essentially exactly and being yeah. part of that transformation and being part of that brand's journey yeah you know and feeling that the idea that we've had that i've had is making impact yeah. on their business and you can measure that right like going definitely back to the valent case study you can measure the impact of that launch versus when they launched it originally right? exactly and it would have been totally different completely and i yeah. think you know i think we, we we were doing a lot of freelance work um myself and my uh copy partner um and we won a pitch for nfu mutual okay so, so at this point it's not just you you have someone that you're working with yeah so so someone, nigel was yeah. my um uh, a good friend of mine still he um was, was a freelance freelancer too okay so i set up so we were freelancing separately we would yeah. charge as kind of separates you know we were a team we were doing separate agency work yeah but then after probably about a year year and a half i was like, like i want to set up something formal uh, you know, I want to be an, I want to create an agency. Yeah. So after, after, the, uh, you know, fair, fair amount of discussion, um, we decided that I would set the agency up. It would be my agency. I would found it and Nigel would partner with me on it, but yeah. he, he was, ha he had his own thing. Yeah. Um, and we started, we had a, an RFP given to us, so a, a request for proposal. Do you want to throw your hat in the ring for this? Um, it was essentially like a, a report design. We want some concepts. We want some ideas. We yeah. want to make it more human. It's for NFU Mutual. And it came through a mutual contract, contact someone that I'd worked with um, in agency. And that's She'd the power of networking, work. right? Exactly. So using LinkedIn, but also talking to people and going to things to yeah. see people face to face. Yeah. And just because you never know where that's going to go. No. And, she, and I, I remember her ringing me and saying, look, you know, we've got this opportunity for uh, a tender. We're putting it out to multiple agencies. Do you want to have a have a go? And I was and like, probably first because thing. she wants to support you. Yeah. You know what people don't realize because they don't want to go out and they don't want to meet people. and They don't want to put themselves in a vulnerable position to say, look, I've got this startup business. I'm really great at what I do, but I don't have a lot of clients right now. So if anything comes up, and here's some of the work I've done when I was previously working and you think that I'd be good for it, please let me know. Definitely. But people don't want to put themselves out there for fear of failure. But I think you have to. Mm. And you have to say that thing to as many people as possible. Exactly. You know? And and I think actually, you know, the network is so important because ultimately with any form of new business and any form of growth, you know, the the, the seeds that we're sowing now through our approach, through our mindset, through our creativity, you know, they may not grow for two, three years. Yeah. But actually, I think if you see every interaction you have with every individual as a representation of uh, something good and your passion, people remember that. And like you say, yeah. at the end of the day, people buy from people. Yeah. You know, I think 
the situation with this individual, a lady called, called Laura, who I'm still in, in contact with, she she moved on from the business, but she, you know, I remember her saying to me, like, do you want to kind of put some ideas in? Yeah. And it was like, a, you know, it was like, definitely, there was yeah. no, you know, there was no question of it. Yeah. There was also that, oh, you know, are we, are we able yeah. to do this? You know, we're up against other agencies. Can we do this? But I was like, you know, I think that, that kind of, um, you know that that complex of you know you're not good enough or you'll never do. It. I think everybody struggles with, especially in the uh, early years. But yeah. I knew that we had a really great creative product and that we could do the job. Yeah. So we won the pitch, um, and uh, we've been working with Energy Mutual now for nearly seven years since wow. that one pitch. And it's just that grown. in itself is such a testament. I mean, you can have case studies, but I'm creating some case studies for our clients now as well. And, you know, some of the clients we've had, I remember one creative agency that we've got as a client, PS London, they're called. They have been with us for 12 years. I remember when I first started the business, getting up at six in the morning to go to BNI meetings, to stand mm. up and do a 60 second pitch. Mm. And I probably went for six months until eventually Robert, who's one of the founding partners, said to me, oh, let's go and have a chat. You know, and like you said, you have to stand up and do that 60 second pitch for six months just letting them know what you do and building trust. And then when they have a need, they will come to you. But I think if you're looking at working with people, look at their case studies, because if they're doing a good job, they will have retained their clients for a long, long time. Certainly. It's such a, I don't think there's any better way to show that you are a good business and you're doing a good job. The fact that you've held an international, internationally renowned brand Mm. for seven or eight years you know and i think it comes back to as well caring you know like i i'm a bit of a foodie you know i love my food so as a result i'm interested in agriculture and i'm interested in you know that kind of sector and obviously yep. energy mutual as much as you know that they, 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 they their insurance products cover you know commercial their their foundation came from you know a national uh federation of uh, national was it the a national farmers union mutual yeah um they are in the agricultural sector and i find that fascinating mm. you know some of the some of the sectors they go to and the conferences and some of the shows they go to it's all about tractors and farmers and you know talking about the soil and yeah i find that really interesting so yeah. i find their product interesting yeah so that makes me want to work with them and you know i think we had a conversation, I went over to see them recently um, and it was a bit of a kind of a, a with, with some of their sort of senior, senior management level, talking about how we've done and what we've done for them. And we're not perfect, you know, no, no agency, no individual is perfect. Mm. We make mistakes, everybody mm. makes mistakes. But I think for me, a fundamental part, a fundamental part of, of people trusting you is saying, okay, we didn't do that that well yeah so we're going to do this actually yeah. i don't think we did that as well as we could making it right yeah, yeah. And making it right and focusing on it i think the worst thing you can do is just go like that you yeah. know i don't want to talk about it yeah. being open and talking and listening to that criticism is the best for me the best form of growth yeah you didn't do that very well we didn't we weren't too keen on and that. actually asking being unafraid to ask the client then at the end of the project mm. did we meet your expectations mm. like did we exceed them? If not, what do you think that could have been done better? That's the only way you're going to learn. So many businesses, it's incredible how many people I talk to that are 10 years plus in business and have never asked their clients, you know the service that we give you, do you actually get value from it? Or are you just not moving to someone else because you feel like it's too much hassle to move? So a big part of our um, uh, 
uh, I think growth um, has been in we did exactly that. So yeah. one of our, uh, our agency director Gareth, he he joined the business about two years ago, and what he did is when he came in, he said, look, what we should do is create a, um, this a feedback session, yeah. essentially where we go to all of our clients and we talk to them about what we've what you what we're doing well for them, what we're not mm. doing so well for them, and just talk to them. Yeah. And that was amazing because I think what that did is it gave them a platform to say, we love your do it. We love this. This is what we love about your business. Yeah. You know, we love that it's a family feel, you know, it's a big agency thinking, but you know, you're agile, you turn things around quickly. Um, but we feel that actually maybe you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. And as soon as we were able to hear that yeah. and they felt we were listening, they wanted to talk to us about more stuff. Yeah. So people fear that actually that conversational open up in the client's mind the things you're not doing well and lead to a negative result but i think that will almost never happen definitely the fact that you're even just going and saying i want the feedback so i can improve that client will see as a positive thing and, and and i think you know that they see then that you are genuinely vested in helping them yeah. you know it's not just about getting the invoice in at the end of the month and yeah. making sure they're paying you know i think it's because ultimately, I think when you work with the big, bigger businesses, it's not their money. Mm. You know, it's not like you're working with a smaller kind of startup where it's their own investment. That's a that's a different approach. Yeah. You know, I think they obviously have their budgets and they have their responsibilities. But I think, you know, what they're interested in is the job going well. Because yeah. ultimately, you know, it's their name that's, you know, the work we do yeah. is their name that's being seen. Yeah. So I think having those open and honest conversations with people for me is just a massive part of making sure the business is healthy and that you're listening to the clients yeah yeah because it should be client-led not i know best because i designed this product or service mm. and you as the client will either like it or go somewhere else so how do you transition from you and nigel who, who's your first hire that is maybe taking some of the workload off you so it was a really interesting journey, I think, and I'll tell this kind of story in that the first year, so when it was just me and Nigel working on uh, the, the creative, yeah, I got to the end of the year and I thought, I've got a couple of brilliant campaigns. We did a launch for, for an app. We won um, you know, a couple of smaller businesses doing loads of great work. I sat down with my, uh, with my wife and we looked at what the business had earned. Yeah. And I remember her saying to me very clearly, which was really hard to hear, mm. looking at what you've earned and looking at the hours that you've worked this first year, you should have really gone and worked in a shop. Yeah. I was earning less than minimum wage for the hours that I was working. Yeah, which is what we call average hourly rate as an accountant. So if you're listening to this and you never calculated it, add up all the hours you worked last year. If you've got staff, you can add up the staff at various levels and divide it by the amount of revenue that they generated. And you'll be amazed how oh, low it comes out. It's scary. It's so scary. Even with us, we have a target average hourly rate and our actual is we're probably creeping up to about 45% of the target now. Mm. So there's this notional target that you never get to because if you mm -hmm. hire good people, their tendency will also to be to do extra work for Definitely. the client, even yeah. to try and sneak that extra work in without me knowing about it. <laughs> but that's good because they're good people and they care and about passionate. the client, yeah. but you have to temper that yeah. when they come on, right? Exactly. So yeah, your wife said, 
your average hourly rate is around yeah. twenty or something. <laughs> exactly. I think it was even less than that. Yeah. I think it was horrendous. I, I I could have made this up, you know, with with years, but I feel like it was something like three pound twenty three. It was so low. And is that two lessons? One is, uh, you know, workflow and managing how much you're putting in, but also it's got to be an adaptation of pricing in there as well, right? More pricing confidence. Exactly, exactly both. Yeah. So I think the first thing that I thought about was that what I was doing is we were charging for the creative. Yeah. So the client would come to us and say, look, we've got um, this video, we've got this brochure, or we've got this logo, or we've got whatever. We've got this piece that needs doing. I would quote that up and say, here it is, here's your cost. They would say, great, we would start work on it. What I wasn't doing is adding any account management time to that. Yeah, now it okay. sounds like such an obvious thing now, yeah. but actually when I'd come from obviously being just managing a creative department. Yeah, you don't think about that. I don't think about the about sheer about amount of time. The work being done to create, not to manage the project. Exactly. Talk to the client, go through the revisions, all it's, of these things. And it's almost half, you know, so, so, okay. so the creative product might take us a week. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not quite half, but it might be sort of 30% of that would yeah. then be account management. And I wasn't quoting for any of that time. Yeah. So immediately I've lost 30% of the job. Yeah. And on top of that, I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing the hours I was quoting for. So I was doing, again, probably double that. So if I was quoting for two days, yeah. I had in my head, this is about a reasonable figure, but because my standards were so high the reality yeah. is i was probably doing four days on that job so immediately yeah. i've stripped you know this quote that i've created yeah a hundred percent down to probably 50 40 percent of of the value it should be yeah which you're kind of lucky because it's you mm. so you're still receiving income but if you had staff and you look at the typical profit margin in an agency being maybe 15 to 25 percent the bigger you get Ideally, we'd want and if any any service business that we work with to be sort of thirty to forty percent, mm. but most of the bigger agencies that we see will be between fifteen and twenty five percent. You'd be making a loss if you had a staff doing that work. Definitely. Well, as as you say, it was just me and Nigel at that point. So we, yeah. So we it was we were just like this is just not great. We're just this working hard, not, not yeah. earning that much. Exactly. Yeah. So there were two things that I had to do. Um, that were very clear to me. One was the pricing structure was just too low. You know, yeah. I need to be pricing it at a more competitive, because I was pricing, we were pretending we were an agency, acting yeah. like an agency, but we were using freelance fees. And yeah. when you look at the pricing structure for an agency, you know, it's much higher than it is for a freelancer. That's because there's all these this extra stuff that's yeah. going on yeah. that you need to charge for. Um, but I didn't know that. And also I didn't know that I needed to be charging for the account management side yeah. of things. Yeah. So as soon as I shifted to a, that mindset, things started to change. Yeah. Um, with that comes a real challenge of if you have a client that's used to you charging them a certain amount for a certain, for a certain thing and, and you double it, business, yeah. you double it overnight, that's never going to land. That's yeah. never going to go. Yeah. So then you're faced with the challenge of, okay, well, how do you grow your existing clients to move to the pricing structure that you need yeah. so that you've got space on the job and that you've got the ability to bring other people into that job? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to deal with. So so the first thing I did really was I um, brought in Amy. So um, Amy's now our client services director. Okay. So we operated from a, a again almost like a consultancy so she was a consultant Nigel was a consultant I was a consultant and yeah. we started operating like that yeah but what she helped me do is 
build time and meat into the jobs yeah. for her time yeah. and, and increasing the pricing structure. So as soon as we did that, we then had jobs that were very profitable. Mm. So then I have space to employ a designer yeah. and bring a designer in. And as soon as I then have space to employ a designer, I then have space to be doing the new business, helping on the creative tenders. Because that's taking some space. of your time away. Exactly. And when you make that first decision to hire that designer, is that because you've either built up enough cash like you did when you first started to say, well, if I bring them on and I don't have quite enough work, I can still pay them for six months? Or can you see your, what we call a pipeline, so you can see your prediction of future work with enough confidence that you bring them on? Or is it a bit of both? It's a little bit of both. Because if you've got bigger clients and you know you've not, you know, you know that client's happy, you know their budget is going to go up or down depending on how well that business is doing, which you can look at because most of them are publicly traded businesses so you can see mm. their share price and things like that. So you have an indication, okay, well, if their budget was 100K this year, they're doing really well, share price is up, they're probably going to have 100K budget for us next year. We've surveyed them, they're happy. You know, as much as you can without them committing, which they won't do years in advance, mm. they'll probably spend the 100 with us again. And then you start building out this pipeline of projected work. And then as an agency, you can start to say, well, we can hire this person here and this person here and this person here. So it's probably, would you say it's easier for you because you work with bigger clients than someone that's an agency working with owner-managed businesses where it's very difficult to predict future income? Definitely. I think um, for, for us, again, this why it comes back to relationships. I think, you know, we we try and talk to the um, the 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 businesses that we work with and say, look, you know, what do you expect yeah. you will need next year? You know, they can't always put a specific figure on it, but they'll give us an inclination of, you know, we've got this campaign or we need to yeah. do this. And are you positioning that like, it will help me make sure I've got the capacity to do the work for you? Definitely. Well, we, we want to be in a healthy position yeah. so that, you know, the, the, the businesses we're working for, you know, that we have a team of people that we are able to pay all their salaries. And that's a real skill, isn't it? Because if you look at the big agencies, which is probably where you've taken this from, they will have someone whose specific job it is to do business development mm. and nurture that relationship and get that indication from the client so they can fill in their projected income for the year mm. and look at staffing and look at the blend of, of freelance and full-time people. And you can just do the same if you're willing to be, put yourself on the line and say, are you happy? Are you going to work with us next year? If so, what's the scope look like? Definitely. Because I think a lot of the work that we do is um, project-based. We yep. do have retainer businesses. Um, and, you know, the retainer businesses obviously help because you're able to project. Yeah. But thing, nothing is set in stone. Everything is, is at a level of risk. You know, I think you may have a business where procurement decide that they need to take... Um, multiple uh, agencies and mm. put it out to tender because or a new managing director comes in exactly change new, happens yeah, yeah, yes yeah. yeah. so so I think going back to your kind of question of how how did we make that decision to employ the first designer for me I almost had enough um, uh, capital uh, enough enough cash in the business that we knew we could cover yep. that salary for nine months so yep. if all work dropped. You know, we could cover the, that's that that first salary for for nine months, and that gave me a sense of security mm. that I knew 
that would give me the space to then keep building that. And we, yeah. I try and do that, you know, with every hire. I, I, I like to, Build I, I want cash. to know, yeah. That In lots of agencies, they do, they do not do that, I can mm. tell you. They look at their pipeline, spend all their money on promotion and use the pipeline to do the hiring. Mm. I think in today's world, with the levels of risk and change that do happen, much better if you can build up cash reserves for that salary to include also six months worth of your regular overheads for your existing team Mm. and just run like this. But then that's probably because you and your fellow directors aren't materialistic and you're not trying to strip all the cash out to go on fancy holidays and buy expensive cars. I love the fact that you've got a Tesla like me through the business, Mm -hmm. 2% benefit in kind charge, Mm. brilliant car. And you get to the point now, if you're putting cars through the business and all of these, using all of your tax deductions, you don't actually need to take that much out of the business as dividends and salary. Because a lot of it can go through as, like if the cars are going through, that's a big expense, right? Mm, Definitely. And you're not, and we spoke about this, your team now is hybrid. So you're, you're recruiting the best people from around the UK, not necessarily expecting them to all be local to a Birmingham office and come in every day. Mm. I guess, does that line up with your philosophy of why you started the business in the first place to give everyone good work-life balance and flexibility? Yeah, that, 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 that was why, as, as you say, why I set up Kingle. It was ultimately that I believed that you could do good work you can be passionate about what you do, work hard, but have a good work-life balance. How do you switch off though? Like I was talking to my wife about this because I'm deep into building out uh, online funnels now because we've grown, got to roughly 2 million sales just organically through referrals. But we want I want more consistency of lead generation now so I can step away from that because a lot of that relies on an individual's network. Mm. And so I get deep into something, like my kids, they are drawing at the moment. They'll do a drawing, you'll buy them this painting, they'll paint all day, then they'll wake themselves up early to go back down and continue painting. That's brilliant. And my wife will be like, these two are nutcases. Well, how do we stop this? I'm like, don't stop it, because this is good. It's a good indication that when they're adults, if they have a problem, they'll work on it until they find a solution. Mm. But uh, my long-winded way of saying this is, it's with the five o'clock I find it very difficult to stop thinking about the design of my lead page and now switch on to I'm having a family dinner. Yeah. And I really struggle with that. I, th- I think that that for me is something that I've battled with a lot <clears throat> as well over the, the, the last years, uh, last few years. I think for me, work-life balance isn't necessarily about I just stop work then because I think like you say, when you're a business owner, you can't stop you, thinking. There's about. no way you can switch off from it. I mean, yeah. it's a slight aside, but we do timesheets at work and I kind of track the hours I'm working. But actually, I work all the time. Yeah. I am at work all the time. When I'm on holiday, I'm at work. And you might have a great idea on holiday and then take yourself away for a couple of hours to journal. Exactly. And write things down about it, right? So you don't lose it. But I think for, for this sounds silly, but for me, I try not to call what I do work. Yeah. I don't call it work anymore. I think it's just what I do. I've yeah. come to realize that this is just what I do. Um, so for me, it's not been about I stop at six and then I start again at nine the next day. It's been about ch- work, working on my mindset and my mindfulness. So I hate the word mindful. I always feel it sounds a little bit kind of hip, hip, hippie. I don't, I, with me, 
it's a great word and I don't think it's hippie because mindfulness is so important. You know, I think like when you're with your kids then, if they understand it as they start to get older as well, oh, daddy's had an idea, he's just gone back in the office for 10 minutes because I understand he needs to get it down. Mm. But when you come back and you're kicking a ball around in the garden with them, you're not like scrolling on Instagram or responding to emails, you're kicking a ball in the garden with them. And that's, I think that's exactly the key. It's about attention. For me, it's been about learning to notice where my attention is. So the whole, you know, I do do meditate, I do meditation, you know, and I think the whole meditation and mindfulness practice for me has been about learning to notice when my mind is not focused on where it should be. Bringing it back. And bring it back. So, so, So when I am focused on the business, I'm mindful that I'm focused on the business. Yep. When my son comes in and taps me on the shoulder and I'm writing an email, what I try and do is say to him, Shay, just give me two minutes. Yeah, I'll come and talk to you about your drawing and yep. then I'll give you my complete attention yeah, and complete that's focus okay. you don't and that's okay exactly um, i shut the door to my office but it doesn't work they just open no the exactly they, they don't care do they <laughs> <laughs> but i think learning to focus and and notice yeah. where your attention is so important yeah. because it allows you to if you if it allows me anyway to if they want to do a drawing or they want to kick a ball around a few years back this sounds really silly but i used to think this is great i can sit with my son and him be doing stuff and I can still be working. Mm. But I, after a few years of, of kind of feeling like actually I think I'm missing out on stuff here, that is not with my son. Being sitting with my son is yeah. not, unless my attention is on my son, I'm yeah. not really with my children and yeah. my wife. So for me, it's been about practicing mindfulness and that attention. There's a really great book I'm reading at the moment called um, Peak Mind by, oh, um, she's called uh, Dr. Um, uh, um, um, Amishi. Oh, I've forgotten her name. That's terrible. I'll find it. Yeah. Um, read, reading a book called uh, Peak Mind at the moment. And it, she talks about how there are three different types of attention. There's okay. like a spotlight, there's a floodlight, and then she's got like a third version. And the analogy that she's drawing is that when there are, there are times when you need to be laser focused on one thing. Mm. So that might be your son. Yep. It might be, you know, they're, they're drawing that conversation with your wife, that email, that um, uh, particular piece of work. Yep. And then there's the floodlight, which is you might be talking to a client and thinking about the broader challenge of yep. what it is that they're focusing on. And then there's the wider focus, which is what are your general goals and aspirations in life? Mm. And that's a really great way, I think, of thinking about your attention and different times and different jobs for me require different levels of attention. through the week and through the day. That's really interesting. I think I need to do a lot on that. I was meditating consistently and it made a big difference when I don't do it. Like the last few weeks, I've been on holiday, so I haven't done it and got back into it now, just getting over jet lag. The focus starts coming back. Mm. But when you do meditate, I think it is much easier to focus. But one thing, I read a book, um, 10x is easier than 2x, which is really good. I'd recommend it. And it speaks about you cannot focus and have the spotlight nine to five, five days a week. You need to have, they talk about having focus days and buffer days. So I experimented pre-going to Canada for three weeks with Monday, Wednesday, Friday being focus days or I'll try and get at least one block of three to four hours of just focusing on a project. Tuesday, Wednesday then, you're doing your buffer days where you might, so I manage my son's under nine football team. 
there's admin each week with that. I might do that. I might go to the post office and send a few things around. So those kind of jobs, you don't try and fit a little bit of personal admin in every day unless it's urgent. Mm. You do that stuff on the buffer days. Clear all your emails. Clear all your star stuff. Just clean your slate. Mm. Ready for the next focus day. I found that has worked really well. And actually, you probably get more done over the week than trying to do focus or trying to do spotlight, floodlight and big light, stadium light, let's call it, Mm. every day. Definitely. I think it it also really helps with feeling of overwhelm. You know, I see a lot of creatives. That's my constant state. (laughs) I think that's how we live, isn't it? Constant state of an entrepreneur. Overwhelm. Managing overwhelm, yeah. But I think that's, you know, and that, that managing overwhelm is, if you don't manage it, yeah, it's in the word, isn't it? It becomes overwhelming and, and you, you can't th- do anything. Why do you think that we still feel that? I was talking to my wife about this. You know, we've got a business, turns over two mil plus, a nice house, we can go on holiday whenever we want, got money in the bank, you know, we're making progress. Every month we sign clients, it's moving in the right direction. Yet I will still put these notional targets on myself and feel this feeling of overwhelm to hit those targets, mm. even though I know I shouldn't. Mm. Like why, what do you do to stop yourself from feeling overwhelmed and actually enjoy the process? Yeah, I, I think there's, I suppose there's a couple of things for me. I've tried to change how I look at stress. I think for me, stress is something that can be a good thing if it's harnessed in the right way. You know, I think for me, there's a big difference between stress and anxiety. So for me, stress is when you are under pressure, you have to deliver on something and you are in a delivery mode or you're in a certain mindset. Um, Anxiety is a worry. So anxiety is about something in the future that you are ruminating on or you're, you know, you're running around in your head that is a worry. Mm. And I think for me, there's been an important part in trying to separate when I'm feeling anxious about something and when I'm feeling stressed. Okay. So if I'm feeling anxious about something, I've tried to reframe that. So I'm anxious about something because my mind is telling me that I need to do something about it. So I suppose back in, you know, caveman stages you know you would have been anxious about a noise in the bush because yeah. it might be a lion that's about to eat you yeah. you know whereas now obviously that anxiety might be a meeting that anxiety might be a presentation yeah so if i'm feeling anxious about something i try and listen to why i'm anxious because nine times out of ten it's almost my mind telling me i need to do something yeah so if it's a presentation i need to prep better for that presentation yeah or if it's a tricky conversation i'm going to have I need to think about and give myself the space to be ready for that conversation. So you'll give yourself time to sit, feel the feeling and kind of work out where it's coming from. Definitely. And then just calmly do something about it. Exactly. And I think yeah. calm, calm, you know, breathing has been, again, with the mindfulness, breathing has been a massive part yeah. of my management of stress and my feeling of overwhelm. I think going back to your question of being business owners, I think everybody, well, I personally very often feel overwhelmed but a big part of managing that feeling of overwhelm is in things is having coping mechanisms Mm. so those coping mechanisms for me are in planning my day you know i'm quite an anxious person i'm quite high energy yeah you know so i feel that if i plan my day i've not got all this stuff of i've got to do this got to do that because i know it's planned in at a certain point in the week going back to what you were saying about blocking that time yeah that has been a massive part of 
alleviating my my worries because I haven't got the uh, you may have read the book the the chimp complex yeah you know I haven't got my chimp again actually yeah read it again I haven't got my chimp going mad in the back of my mind going you need to do this this and this because it's planned in exactly how do you plan your time do you have a system versus a to-do list or so this is an interesting question you've got client projects you've got team members to 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 keep track of or just retain keep happy check how they're doing against their key performance indicators Mm. you've got your kids you've got your wife you've got your own personal health goals how do you sit down and plan the week so you've got the right balance of of work around each of the areas that's a really good question i don't think it's something i get right all the time but i do have a a a process in the way i i I do it i tend i tend to get up when we're busy i tend to get up and i think i've heard you say the same quite early yeah i'd rather get up at six o'clock go downstairs and work for a couple of hours before the boys get up yeah um, i'm you know i'm a very active i'd like to think i'm a very active part of the family i help the kids get for breakfast i take them to school i drop them off yeah. you know, and I, I really enjoy that you know i think that's a real privilege so i want to be present for when i'm doing that but i find that if i get up at six o'clock and work six to eight before yeah. all the emails come in before the kids get up that's when i do my best thinking and my best planning yeah and that's when i plan in my week okay what i shows you don't need this crazy hour-long yoga meditation stretching jumping on a on a trampoline (laughs) jumping in an ice bath type thing no you just get up and you work yeah and 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 i and i like do you drink coffee i um no i i drink a lot of green tea okay i don't drink coffee because i've i find that it makes me quite jittery yeah Uh, i drink a lot of um uh, matcha so okay. matcha gives me that same level of caffeine kick. Well, I might I, try that. Yeah, yeah. I, I fear it doesn't give me the crash yeah. however many hours later. Um, so I'm a bit of a green tea buff. Yeah. Um, I love my green tea. Um, but yeah, so then what I do during the week is there are times, I'm very transparent with my diary with the team because we work remotely. Yeah. I think I it's another way of me showing the team, I think that, you know, I am, I am, around when they need but there are times when i'm not around you yeah. know there are times when i need to focus and i generally will block book like maybe i tend to do 90 minutes there'll be a block book in yeah. my calendar yeah. that says work block do not disturb yeah and the team will know that i won't answer to any slacks that we i won't answer to anything yeah um, and in that time that's when i do my best creative work and i tend to try and do that probably three times a week and you'll have a certain number of active projects and clients that you're choosing to work on because you still enjoy doing the work. Exactly. And then will you have little blocks in the week for checking in with the team? Yeah. You've already got your workouts and your thing already laid in. Yeah. You've got your family time already laid in. That's it. You've got, I have to put thinking time in, in the week. What are we going to do as a family on the weekend? These things to remind me to be part of that process. Mm. But mine is similar. I like to get up early and I don't do work. But if I wake up at, say, six, I'll come down, have a drink, walk the dog around the block, then sit down, plan my day, maybe get a few little things done. Mm. And I clear my notifications in the morning, Mm. which is the worst thing to do. But now I've got to a place where that's good for me because then I can do my work blocks. Yeah. Then I'll take the kids to school. My wife gets them ready. I don't get involved in the shouting and screaming of trying to get them ready on time. I just pick them up from the front door and take them to school. Then go to the gym. And yeah. then I'll start my work day about 11 by the time I've got back from the gym and showered. Mm. But I know exactly what I'm going to do. 
so then I can work from 11 till 5, say, where if they've got after-school activities and I need to pick them up 11 till 3, but I can get so much done. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I, I find on Karma as well, if I've done at least an hour before there are any emails, before anybody gets up, because yeah. I almost feel like I've got ahead of the day. I guess you're still getting emails. I think the difference now with me is I can go and clear the notifications, but I know that there won't be emails from clients because I don't do any client work. Mm. There won't be, I, I probably get like five emails a day. Mm. But back at the point where I was doing client work and getting client emails, I definitely think that's good advice for people. Never, there's a good chapter in 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss where he talks about blocking out emails into three batched email check times mm. when you can stop, do it. So you wake up, do your focused work, then check your emails and do a bit of admin or whatever for half an hour, then do another block of focused work, then emails and another block and then sign off. Yeah, I think that's great. And yeah. that's what I've got my team doing now because they would sit in their inbox and as soon as a client emailed them, they'd reply straight away, which creates this chain reaction. Mm. So if the client wants to discuss something really important, they can book at any time with their accountant a Zoom call. They've got a Calendly link to do that. Mm. If it's an email, they don't expect an instant response. So as long as you acknowledge that email in one of the three or two slots for checking emails, if you can answer it, great. If you can't, at least acknowledge it and say, I've received it, but I need to do X, Y, and Z. It's really interesting. I think it's, I think that I was reading a book um, and it talks about uh, this hive mind. Yeah. Um, which essentially, you know, when you have bigger teams and there's lots of chitter chatter going on, it's really, really hard to, uh, to to focus. Yeah. And I think there is a, you know, especially with working remotely, there's lots of Slack messages, Teams messages, yeah. emails coming, around, you know, flying around. You have to set boundaries as to and to give yourself that focus, that focus, because otherwise, like you say, that hive mind thinking will just consume your day. And you don't get anything done. So do no. you take your lessons and coach your team? Here's what's worked for me and here's what I'd recommend. Definitely. I think it's, with the senior directors, obviously they have their processes. And yeah, they have that's their, like, it's, it's, I don't get involved in Yasser, my business partners. Yeah, they do that. They do it. Yeah, their, I know their, it their works way. for him and it's different to me, but yeah. That's it. But the more junior members of staff, yeah, I, I you know, I'd, I'd like to think that for me, there we, we obviously do um, their PDPs, the personal developments. You know, I think they have uh, half year and yearly reviews. But I think for me, their personal development, I would like to think, kind of comes through the constant. You know, trying to help them with little things. You know, just tweak that. You know, or, or change. I had a conversation with, with with going back to I mentioned Rosie earlier on recently, and she was saying how she's amazed just how she'll come to eight o'clock in the evening and she'll get loads and loads of work done. Yeah. And I'm like, well, well, why is that? And she was, she said, well, it's because I don't have all the pings and the notifications mm. and I can focus on one thing. So I said to her, look, you know, you just answered your own question there. Yeah. Pretend at one o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> yeah. it's eight o'clock at night. Yeah. So turn all your notifications off just for two hours or three hours, whatever. As long as you tell us all that you are focusing on something, that time that you get eight till 11, you can have that yeah. one till four, yeah. but it's just about you learning to turn that off. But I think, and it's just a minor thing. She does it now and it's amazing. You know, we know that she'll go off grid because yeah. she's focusing yeah. and coming back to what we were saying earlier on, that is a trust thing. I trust that if I don't hear from her for a day, yeah. for half a day, I know that she is in 
work mode and that she's focused. She doesn't yeah. have to be responding to messages continually for me to feel that she's working. Yeah. So when you do work remotely, it's for me, it's been so important that everybody feels they are trusted so that they can actually create that time. If they don't feel trusted and they don't feel that they've got the authority to switch off yeah. from that hive communication for a certain period of time, they won't. And then they won't be productive. Yeah, and that's the biggest lesson for people that are thinking about going remote or are running remote teams. Make sure that they have those blocks. Make sure that you talk to them about how they can work effectively. Share what works for you. We have this system called RotorCloud, which allows people to put in a week in advance and have it approved when they want to work. So, for example, if we had a creative and she said, look, I actually, with my kids and with everything that's going on, I'd rather have four hours in the afternoon to be with my kids in the summer holidays and whatever. And when they go to sleep at eight o'clock, I'll work from eight till 12. We'd say, that's fine. Put it in Rotor Cloud, get it approved. And if that's, because sometimes creative people love to work at night mm. and you work at night, as so long as you're not client facing and that works for you and that works for us, then fine. We just want to know what your work slots are through the week. And that, that's exactly it. I think finding how that individual chooses to work. For me, yeah. I genuinely, and I say this to all of our creatives, I genuinely don't care when you work. Yeah. You know, I think if you've got a brief, you know what needs delivering. You do it when you want. You it doesn't make a kids. difference to you. No, it, exactly. You know, and I think yeah. actually, like you say, some individuals prefer to work in the evening. Some prefer to work in, in the morning. Some have kids that they want to pick, off, pick up and drop off. Yeah. I genuinely don't care when you do it. As long as if the work gets done, and it's to the standard we've agreed. And if they're case. not at their desk, you know where they are because yeah. they're using the statuses on Slack or- Exactly. We recently moved from Slack to Google just because we're paying for Google Suite anyway. So we may as well use Google Chat, mm. which has worked fine. Slack is really good, but mm. Google Chat's free. So mm. happy days. Um, okay. Let's, we're definitely gonna have to do a part two because there's loads of individual areas that I'd really like to dig into in a bit more detail. So this is more of an overview and then we'll get some feedback and then hopefully dig in a bit more. Certainly. Um, how, I think we've kind of already answered this. So in terms of how I talk about a business has to do well, it has to attract clients, convert those clients and deliver to clients. So just a recap for people and if I've missed anything, let me know. In terms of attracting clients at the start and now, you've built a big network. You put out good content, you create the case studies, you're creating authority and awareness in the marketplace. You're developing relationships online and face-to-face. -face. You're bringing in clients, but then you're making sure that you attract new work from existing clients by having conversations with them. Um, you do PR, you do press, you do some outbound. Yeah. Is that? That's correct. Yeah. About it? Definitely. Yeah. So in terms of converting clients, your method of converting clients, because you work with bigger clients, is usually face-to-face, -face, either pitches, paid pitches, or, yeah, I guess that's it, right? Pitches yeah. or paid pitches. But if, it, if it's a new client, uh, someone we've not worked with before, then usually it will come from an introduction or it yeah. might be an RFP, where, like you say, where, where we pitch and we win it. Yeah, and is any of that online or is most of it, you go there and you meet them in person? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's usually face-to-face. -face. Yeah, okay. I think during the COVID years, obviously, you know, there was challenges of having, and we, we did do a couple of presentations, big presentations online, which I hate, you know, because you just you want to look someone in the face and gauge yeah. their reaction. I want to feel how, I want to see if they're feeling what I'm feeling for the yeah. creative. Yeah, and the value is worth it. Like I wouldn't necessarily go and see a client. We do all of our conversion on Zoom. 
because the client might be a thousand pounds a month, mm. but you might be talking about a big project for a big brand that's worth 50 or 100K and you need to go mm. and see someone face to face to do that, right? Definitely. Ideally. Um, and you presumably your clients are all over the UK. They're not Midlands based. You've got clients in London, Manchester, yeah. We've got, right? we've got clients in Dubai. We've got clients in London. Oh, okay. Um, We're just opening an office in Dubai this week. Oh, yeah. We'll have to talk about that yeah. separately. Mm. Um, so you can take on clients anywhere? Internationally, yeah. I okay. think that's been one of the, the directors, Gareth, who joined us recently. He yeah. uh, lived and worked in Dubai for about 10 years. Okay. Um, I'd actually worked with him previously in the previous agency we kind of crossed paths yeah and uh the the journey for us coming together was interesting so when i was freelancing he was running the agency in dubai and i freelanced for him he then moved back to the uk and i said yeah. to him, Look, i'm looking for some uh consultancy help yeah. business consultancy help on growing yeah. the business can you come and help me so then we worked together that way and then he kind of says to me "Look, i love the business model i love where you're going with the business you know can we work together? Yeah. So we joined the, the, the Kingle team. So it is like a collective. What mm. I think what's very unique about it and how you've managed to break through the freelancer to business owner barrier is instead of you trying to be this king sat at the top table, employing mm. people in a triangular structure underneath you, you've said, okay, well, my zone of genius is this. I need to create this board or collective of other senior people that I bring on and give them part of the business and mm. share in the profits of the business. Exactly. So you've got each area covered, which if you look at a big business, they would, they'd have a head of marketing and sales or a head of marketing and a head of sales, head of client delivery, mm. head of creative, and you bring these higher level people in. So it's not just your responsibility. When you hire a new designer, you've got other people that can take responsibility for overseeing and managing the team as well. And And, and I think actually for me, that's, that came from the, you know, obviously it's, we're all, there's, there's eight of us now, we're all full time in the business. Yeah. But that mindset of, I, when you when you manage a freelance collective, because I'm not employing these individuals that I'm working with, I have no official authority over them. Yeah. So I had to learn to manage and work with people that ultimately nobody's higher than, than anybody else. So the way you've articulated that, you know, I don't see myself at the top of the business yeah. and everybody's below me. I think quite the opposite. I almost see it as a as a linear approach. Yeah. You know, everybody has their specialism. Everybody does what they want to be doing and, and has their their skill set, but we're working together to to do the best work we can. And I think yeah. that's why for me, you know, we're turning over plus of a million pounds now. You know, we do yeah. we're, we're doing well, I think. I don't have the vision of wanting to create a 50, 100 man team. Yeah. You know, I think actually this maybe up to 12 people would be a nice size. Yeah. Um, but it's never really be about me barking orders or me kind of saying, I'm the big wig, you do as I say. No. This is more, this is the brief from the client. How do we as a team do that rule on one side? I've experienced in the past us and them mindsets as well within mm. teams. Mm. And I think. That for me is just the opposite of what any business needs to have. We yeah. ultimately, if there's one, if one team member has a problem, we all have that problem, yeah, and we're you, all together to solve it. And if you look at not another industry, but another zone altogether, look at football. If, you, if someone interviewed Pep Guardiola this week, and he his answer to the question, I can't remember what the question was, but no one is beneath me, no one is above me. We're all on the same level. We all That's work together yeah. for the common goal. Mm. I don't treat anyone differently, whether they're the coach who lays out the cones, who's a junior, or whether 
then my assistant who's taking the sessions on a day-to-day basis, he treats everyone the same. Mm. And that culture that he's created is why they're so successful. It's not, obviously he's a tactical genius as well, but if he was a tactical genius with an authoritative approach, they wouldn't be where they are. No. Everyone is bought into it. So everyone can make decisions. So people also as an owner, one of the biggest blocks is everyone keeps coming to you mm. to make all the decisions. Whereas really you want people to have the authority to make their own decisions up to a certain point within limits. Um, okay, and then delivery. How do you deliver massive value to your clients? I think you've already answered that as well. To me, it, it comes across that you really try and understand the product. You build long-term relationships. You get passionate about the business and the product and you understand it and do whatever it takes, I guess. Probably overworking a lot at the start, which is fine because you really want to get under the skin of the business. Yeah, I think quality for me is is a really key part of what we do. Um, there are some businesses that, there have been a few businesses that haven't, gone forward with us because our pricing is too high yeah but the reason that we are say a little more expensive is because of those extra hours and that quality and the quality of the team as well yeah so i you know i would like to think that a big part of that delivery is almost that obsession for it to be the best it can really be and you know when the client i suppose buys our services you know I, my name, because we're not a massive team, and this goes back to the comparison of a huge agency versus a smaller a smaller agency, I am completely vested in that project doing well. Yeah. The, the, the directors in the business are vested. Their name is on that job. So if that job doesn't go well, it's down to, you know, their name is on it. So there's yeah. a level of pride and there's a level of commitment that you live and breathe it. So when there is a problem for me in the business, you know, as I say, no, nobody's perfect. You know, I think we we take pride on ourselves in that we will be open and want to kind of talk about it. Yeah. Okay. So what are your goals for the future? One of my um, major goals, I think, for the for the next 12 years, uh, sorry, for the next 12 months is... Um, I was going to say, that's a specific long-term goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. I know exactly where I'm going to be in 12 years. <laughs> no, I think that the, the next 12 months, I think, for us is about continuing to build the pipeline yeah i think is about continuing to to, to grow the business by say 10 percent. yeah i think um for me i want to grow the team i think as i say we're at um eight at the moment i'd like to get to maybe nine ten people um for me it's about sustainable growth i was just about to say that yeah it's not you know we're not in a position where i want to be grow you know a steep a steep growth curve it's about making sure that we can add value to our existing clients. Yeah. We maybe take on another, you know, a, a additional client. Um, but it's, again, for me, it's really important that it's not about pitch, 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 pitch. It's about mm. finding the right opportunity that we fit well with yeah. and just continuing to grow. So again, for me, it just comes back to that balance, making sure that we grow, we yeah. work hard, but we keep a good balance and that everybody in the business stays healthy yeah. and that the business itself keeps growing and stays healthy. Yeah, and what I love about that is one of the most successful mentors that I've ever spoken to, he runs an accountancy firm in Australia. They grew from, I think, 1 million to 20 million in sales over five years, something like that. Fastest growing accountancy firm in Australia. His advice to me when I said, look, how are you growing? How are you getting clients? Was 
I won't do an Australian accent. <laughs> Listen, mate, <laughs> just focus on your clients and focus on your people. When you've got key people, give them an ownership stake so you, they don't go anywhere. Make sure they're happy. And if you focus on your clients and make sure you're doing an amazing job, they will recommend you to every person they come into contact with because they'll become raving fans and you won't have to do any marketing. And you'll retain your people and you'll retain your clients. Mm. And I didn't really listen to that. You know, this is five, six years ago. I thought, ah, oh, no, it's okay. Look, as long as we're doing what the client signed up for and that is enough, that's fine. Why would I spend extra time really spending time with that client, understanding what else they need? Are they happy getting feedback? All of that stuff. Because my time could be spent elsewhere, setting up a Facebook ad or going to a networking meeting or whatever it might be. But he was spot on. Mm. And I think it's so smart that you have that approach as well. Because like for people listening, if you're not doing that and you're not focusing on your people and your clients above new clients, there's two ways to run a business, right? One, like a mentor of mine that said, listen, mate, you shouldn't care if people leave because if you've got a really good lead flow pipeline, they'll all be replaced. Or make your clients really, really happy and grow through referrals and organically primarily. One is gonna, if you genuinely care about your clients, upset you. Like I get physically upset if a client leaves, mm. which touch wood doesn't happen very often. And the other one is for someone who's really, really focused on sales and money and doesn't really care about what they're doing. They've just started their business primarily to make money. Mm. And I think that's the big, that's a big difference. I think if you are in it just for the money, like you say, the decisions are different yeah. if you're in it because you care. Yeah. I think I, I, have, a, I have a mentor. So my mentor actually was the, first person that employed me out of university so a guy called um uh phil he he, he ran an agency he I, I it was my first art direction job out of university yeah he grew that business i think when i joined them i think they were probably about 25 he grew that up to 100 plus and then and then sold it so that's got to be one of your keys to success which i'm going to ask you in a minute for your three keys mm. is everyone i speak to that's got their shit together and is growing a good business has a mentor Oh, he's brilliant. To guide you and when you're stuck, someone to go to. I, I spend, I might spend an hour, hour and a half on a call with him. Yeah. And I come away almost, yeah, I come away exhausted yeah. because of the amount of insight. It's amazing. It's almost like I've just downloaded been 10 years of done experience. It, right? He's been yeah. there and done it and you're stuck and you go there. And sometimes I can have a 15 minute call with my mentor. He's a friend of mine. And I don't need one at the moment because I'm still actioning the stuff that we covered in the last 15 minute call. But in 15 minutes, he's given me answers to my problems and I'm totally unstuck. And then he's given me another three months worth of work to crack on with. Mm. And I think he's just so calm. He's dealt with everything. Yeah. And I base a lot of, and I said this to him before, I base a lot of my business decisions on what I experienced in his business. Yeah. The way he treated his staff the way uh, him and his wife actually how, how they treated I mean I was quite ill when I work, worked uh, there I was and I was off for three months and they 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 paid me full salary you know they kind of they were really really good to me mm. I was very junior yeah they really grew me they supported me that the way they treated their staff with 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 you know with kind of um uh their personal development they invested very much in their staff and their clients yeah. he was always at the forefront of those relationships yeah and he just, he he cared, mm. he really cared. And every time I speak to him, he almost implants this, you know, these these decades of of, 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 of experience yeah. into my mind. That because I think he's been there it's just amazing. Yeah. I put a reel out yesterday, which probably wound a few people up, but 
just basically said, be really careful about who you take advice from. I agree with you completely. Because they need to have either proven that they've done it with their clients, their advice delivered. If you're going to them for advice in order to grow your business and be a better business, I'm not talking about you know, a leadership coach who's specifically going to come in and teach you a framework to develop KPIs for your team mm. has to make more money than you. But if you go to a coach or a mentor and you want them to help you grow your business, they should have either done it themselves or be able to prove that they've done it with clients. I, I agree. I, I think, you know, you can have a theory-based coach, yeah. but unless you've really faced those problems, you know, it's hard to give It's not the same. Advice. They're just teaching you a framework, which you could yeah. ultimately, in my belief, get from reading the book that they read. Yeah. Right? What are your three keys to success? So this is, it could be across different times. So if you're a freelancer and you're looking to move into scale, if you're employing people and sort of where you're at now. One of them for me, don't let me give you one of your three keys, but it's got to be having a mentor to guide you Mm. along the way, isn't it? Mm. I think there's probably, yeah, there's, there's two or three things. I think learning has been a massive part so your own self-development for me yeah i think finding ways to learn and giving yourself the space to learn is is so important one of the questions i always ask anybody i'm interviewing is how do you um focus on your own self-development yeah because i think for me how they answer that shows how passionate they are about the industry they're in yeah i'm so, smiling because i interviewed someone this week and i asked that same question mm. they didn't understand the question right and then when i asked them again they said uh well i love to read fiction and i'm like that's yeah that's not the answer i'm looking no for. no because right? if you love numbers and accounting you would listen to economics podcasts you'd read the mm. harvard business review you'd be interested in business mm. right Exactly. And, and I think it's about finding ways you learn. So I'm quite dyslexic. I've always struggled with dyslexia. I had tuition all the way through university. You know, I think my email responses are terrible. It takes me ages to write emails. But I think I still read. It takes me a lot longer to read things. But yeah. I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So yeah. I will read and I'll listen to the audiobook. So I might digest a book at the same speed as somebody who's used to, you know, who has normal ability of reading. Yeah. But, um, I find ways to learn. Yeah. And I think that the, the mentorship is a big part of that learning for me. Yeah. I think having somebody that you can talk to and trust that you can be completely transparent with and you know has no agenda mm. and has only your interests at, at heart, yeah. that's where I think the best mentorship comes gives you accountability as well yeah yeah and people are arrogant sometimes they start a business and like with you you'd be great as a creative but you don't necessarily have any skills in running a business no so you have to learn oh god that's i think that's a really i mean we haven't touched on that but i think that's the whole podcast in itself in the jumping from doing your craft yeah to running a business that sells your craft yeah is a huge is a huge leap yeah and i think one that for me was a massive, massive learning curve. And I mean, maybe we, maybe we can come back to it another time, but my wife's Yeah, I've just written that. down part two. Yeah. After C, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I think, you know, my wife's input in that journey has been a big part of, I believe, the success. Mm. You know, I think she's 
she works she works now for herself she's a consultant she works with the nhs she's very used to managing budgets yeah so what she did with me i think i mentioned it earlier on is she was she would help me look at the the just the snapshot of the year yeah and go what the hell yeah. what the hell are you doing just so starting to understand your finances yeah and there'll be these key skills like financial intelligence mm. a strategic planning mm. cash hiring, flow lead, leadership and management yep yeah 100%. so there'll be these areas that you need to master to run a business tony robbins has this uh, seven forces of business mastery that's a framework but there'll be others um you can read a book called scaling up you can read EOS entrepreneur operating system all these other things they have they break a business down into these different areas and then as an owner I think it's your responsibility to rank yourself out of 10 in terms of how competent are you in those areas like do mm. you understand how to be a good leader a manager no give yourself a two okay what learning are you going to do to get from a two to a four this year do you understand profit and loss balance sheet cash flow no don't just give that to your accountant say how am I going to learn that mm. Because you need, as a leader, you don't need to be all 10, but I believe that all these, in, so say there's seven areas of a business, you need them all to be fives or sixes or sevens. You need them to be consistent because if you want a business to move forward, it's kind of like spokes on a wheel. If you've got twos, sevens, nines, ones, it's going to be a very bumpy ride mm. and you're going to have big problems in certain areas. Oh, I think a business will be more successful if they're all sixes, then if you've got three nines and three ones and a couple of twos. Definitely. And I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a tax specialist, but I kind of understand like you were talking about with the car and, you know, I understand how, how to use the money yeah. um, to, to work the hardest. But a big part of that again has been in my wife, because she's so good with money, yeah. helping me with that. Um, but we, you know, I, I think back to what you're saying about the profit and loss, you know, I understand how to look at a profit and loss um, uh, report now. Five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, when I started the business, I I did not have a clue. Yeah, and it doesn't mean you have to do it on your own. No. But so long as you can then have an informed discussion with your accountant or with your wife or with your mentor while looking at the profit and loss, yeah. just get yourself to a certain point of competency. Mm. Well, I'm not saying spend all your time out of your genius zone, but just be competent in the other areas. Or you have to hire someone as a managing director to run your business for you. Mm. If all you want to do is stay in your genius zone and, and create. Yeah, you have to bring someone in to run the business, and that was so never you've got my a choice to make, right? Yeah, I always want. I, I, I suppose I get a kick out of the efficiency of the entire business, you know, and learning about and, it. and yeah, learning. learning. Yeah, I, I love business. that. I find it how so interesting. Be a good managing yeah. director. Yeah, exactly. You know, and learning how to manage people. Learning, I can do the creative product. That's what I. That's where I cut my teeth. Yeah, but I find find all the other areas of business and other people's businesses fascinating. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, humans want to learn and develop and if you're not doing that and not making progress you don't feel happiness fulfillment and joy definitely okay so the one key is learning yeah through mentors or through your own learning what are your other two keys to success i think the second one would probably be um investing in your own health yeah. for me that has been a massive part of my growth uh and the business's growth i think if you're not um focused on your health yeah you know, it's something I say, you know, if, if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. Yeah. You know, you there's no there's no point in having a, a huge business if you don't have your health. Um, so for me, it's been about learning to find coping mechanisms to deal with stress and yeah. deal with pressure and deal with the, the, the you know, the, 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 the whirl in, in, in your head as an entrepreneur. I think 
I see it a lot with junior creatives as well, or, or, or people coming into the industry. You know, they 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 might be able to do the design and do the creative, but they they're not able and they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with when the pressure's on yeah. and the stress is on. You've still then got to do your craft with all of this stuff on top. Yeah, you yeah, have and to I see find. That a lot. We've had accountants come in, and you've probably had creatives come in who have left because they just can't deal with it. They yeah. can't deal with having say fifty clients. And things coming at them from everywhere and mm. a system to put them into compartments and priorities and deal with them. Mm. So it's health, mental well-being, which we could do a part three on. Yeah. But also imparting your learnings on your team, right? Mm. What's number three? Number three for me has been in the, the money, the money side of things. Getting on top of your finances. Yeah. You can't have a healthy business based purely on being a creative individual yeah. you have to know how to financially make put that in a healthy situation yeah. so you have to know how to quote the job you have to know how to make sure there are margins on the job you have to know how that time is being allocated what the costs are on that job for a successful business the product is half of it the the financial is the other half of it and i yeah. think if you've got brilliant financials but no product, you're not going to potentially do that well. If you've got a brilliant product and no grasp on the financials, you're not you're not really going to go anywhere. Yeah, you you've can't got make to have that experience, right? and yeah. you can't make decisions. And at some point, something will come down the road that you haven't seen because you're not looking at your finances in the right way, and that will mm -hmm. end your business. Definitely, and I and I think ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't have the right finances in place, you could be as good as you want as a designer. You're not going to be able to pay your team. You're not going to be able to do anything. It, yep. is, it is probably the biggest learning for me that I've taken from building the agency. I love that. Yeah, and that's why, uh, you know, people who know prioritize understanding finances and accounting. You can go to Business Mastery, which is on right now. It's a Tony Robbins event, five-day event, £20,000 it is to go in person. And two days out of the five days are on accounting. Wow. There's a guy called Keith Cunningham who's much more engaging than me. And I think I'm a pretty good speaker, but people love the way he speaks about numbers and they get to the point after the event where they even love him more than Tony because mm. he's so passionate about numbers and he presents it in such a way. And they come away thinking, do you know what? This is the one thing that I didn't know that I needed to know. That's so important. Everything I do in our business and with clients is looking at the existing finances, looking at the historic numbers, creating a financial plan together, and then based on the actual performance of the business against the plan, adjusting the strategy if it needs to, like literally going through every line on the profit and loss and the cash flow and saying, well, that was good, that was not so good, that was bad, and making adjustments to the strategy based on the actual numbers. Otherwise, I just don't understand how you can make decisions. Mm -hmm. Same thing as like having a strategic plan and having focus what we do is work in uh, 90 day sprints where we have three key projects to work on the business to drive it forward. And then we don't allow work on anything else like internal projects until those are done. Otherwise right. you end up with 10 to 15 sort of spinning plates that you do a little bit of everything here, there and look at the end of the year, you haven't completed anything. Mm. Whereas with our system, you get 12 key projects done, which really drives the business forward. Yeah, I think it's super important. And, you know, being in business is, this is not, I stole this from someone, I can't remember who, but 
might have been Tony Robbins, being in business is like being a gladiator because, although this is a negative thing, so I don't want to end it on this, 50% of businesses will fail in the first year. Over 10 years, 96% of businesses fail. So every year you're in business, you're more likely to die. Mm. Like the longer you spend in the ring as a gladiator, mm. the more likely you are to die. That's why there's a time limit. Just survive for a certain period of time and then we'll let you out because eventually you'll die. But the limitation of risk really, to me, is getting on top of your finances. Like if we look at the last 12 years, the failure rate of businesses that are growth out to clients is something like 0.05%. We've literally had one or two businesses fail in 12 years. Wow. And the market is 96%. So it doesn't have to be, you have to be a growth factor client, but you just have to get on top of your numbers. Definitely, yeah. And I think if you, for me, I had I knew nothing about that. So I had to school myself, ask questions, sit with the accountant, you know, make mistakes, work things out. But by doing that, I am able to make better long-term decisions ultimately for the health of the business and mm. for the people in the business. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to cover? I mean, there's lots of stuff that we could probably dig yeah, into. Yeah, no, I definitely think we need a part two <laughs> and a part three, but we've the three keys to success, I think, are incredible for anyone. There's The real critical piece for this, for me, is your insight in how to break through from freelancer to actually having a team and looking at it from a, from a senior recruitment perspective of equals versus trying to pull people underneath you mm. and create a structure like most people just try and replicate the structure of the agency that they came from. Mm. And I don't think you can ever do that because I think ultimately, you know, if you've come from a business that's 30, 50, 100 people, when you're a one, two man band, you have to just work it out yourself. You have to make the mistakes. You know, there's the the, the quote, uh, I think it was Paul Paul Arden that said it was, you know, fail, fail again, fail better. You know, every time you fail, you learn something from it. And that's, that's, that's a great motto, I think, that I think for me also, this sounds really silly, but not taking things too seriously you know i think by looking i've, tra- I've traveled a lot so i've bit spent time in africa i spent time in china you know I, I, seeing how people live in different cultures and mm. see a bit spending time in in developing countries makes me realize that actually i've got so much as it is yeah. you know and i think ultimately everybody has their challenges everybody has their anxieties their stresses their worries you just have to be decent to decent you know decent with everybody you can i think not being so wound up or 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 taking things too seriously i think people respond well to that because you're relaxed more and you deal with i deal with things better if i'm relaxed and i'm I'm breathing yeah and if you're Um, coming from a place of gratitude definitely your decisions in business will be totally different versus coming from a position of need and uh, an expectation as well. I think yeah. there is a certain expectation that you that I put on, you know, the, the team members in delivery. But equally, there is also I have to tailor my expectations that they are different people to me. Yeah. They think differently to me, and I have to check myself with, okay, well, they've not done this. This is how I would do it. But they're not me, you know. And I think they don't think like me. They think differently. And I think having that openness and that mindfulness of everybody's different i have i have no control ultimately over the people i work with yeah i don't want to control them i want them to feel that they are in control but that they have the space the authority and the skill set 
to take control. And I think when you let people have that control for themselves, I believe that's where they flourish and that's where they grow. It's a challenge with junior staff because ultimately they learn best, I think, from exposure to pressure and challenges and giving them advice. Yeah. But I and still, constant and regular feedback. Exactly. Well. But I still believe that by giving them as much control as you can, yeah. that that's where people flourish and grow. Yeah. And I think that is, from all of what we've spoken about, a key difference between you and your agency and why you've been so successful. Thank you for coming and sharing uh, some of your founder story with me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank yeah, you. It's Thank been you for awesome. Me. We definitely need to do an, a part two and a part three. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, guys, for listening or watching. If you're on the YouTube, that's been another episode of Founder Stories, and I'll see you in the next one.